3: So, when it comes to ghosts, I have a story that I think, it's not a story about ghosts, but I, I think the sentiment speaks very closely to how a lot of us feel about the idea of ghosts. So, my friend Anne Batterson was in Ireland. This is quite quite a few years ago, many years ago. Uh, I was in Ireland and staying in a guest house there, and uh, the woman who ran the guest house had, and this was sort of commonly done in those days, and I think still is, boarded up uh, a lot of ways in which little people could get into the house. Um, the little people. So uh, Ann Batterson uh, asked, "Do you do you believe in the little people?" Uh, and the woman said, "No, but they're here." And I think that is sort of where we are on ghosts too. Like we don't believe in ghosts, except we, but they're here. Yes, of course. Um, and and I think ghosts also occupy a different status from a lot of other. Stuff that might drift into an area that sometimes is derisively turned woo-woo. I think ghosts are an awful lot more kind of quotidian almost they're, uh, than, I don't know, alien abductions or demonic possession or, or, you know, psychics who can tell the future. Ghosts are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they live close to us if they live at all. And, and in surveys, 45% of people either think that they do exist or are likely to exist. 20% of people say they've had some kind of experience. I mean, this is just something that's much more widespread. I'm not saying it, that makes it true. I'm just saying it's much more widespread and uh, th- than a lot of this other stuff. So we're gonna explore it that way. We're gonna talk to somebody who has had what seems to be kind of a pattern of experiences during the COVID la- lockdown slash quarantine slash social distancing, which is, At a time of more increased confinement in people's houses, in people's apartments, they seem to be running into things that behave like ghosts or poltergeists or whatever. We're going to talk about that. Uh, We're going to talk uh, in the second segment to a guest who basically is what happens when somebody with a background in electrical engineering and and technology and science and even a a job at the Department of Defense uh, also has some sensitivities uh to the paranormal uh and uh so you'll meet her and then at the end we'll have some skeptics come on but nice skeptics I mean, they're, not, they're not gonna poop all over the people who believe in ghosts I mean, or they, if they do it, they'll do it in a very nice way. So that's the plan. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I just do want to say, obviously, one of the things about this is this is such a pervasive belief in so many different cultures. It really is almost part of being human is to at least entertain the possibility that ghosts, specifically the spirits of the, uh, of the deceased are uh, around us and and can be uh can be experienced. And so with that in mind, uh let's uh, go to our first guest here. We are identifying her only as Danielle, uh, a lawyer in British Columbia. Uh welcome to our show. Thanks it's nice to meet you on the radio. So um well it's nice to meet you a- as well. So um you were home uh, not simply because of the lockdown but you were also you had your own non-covid life-threatening illness that you were recovering from, correct?
0: That's right. So starting um, actually on New Year's Day, um, I went into congestive heart failure, uh, which is pretty unusual for a a person as young as myself. Um, And basically since January, I've been home recovering from that. Um, And so when quarantine happened, it just felt like the rest of the world was joining me in something I was already doing um, because I'd already been home for at least a month, two months at that point.
3: Right. And you had to sort of quarantine on steroids, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, everybody's quarantining, but you, because of your pre-existing condition, uh, the, yeah. the danger to you was more extreme. You really were, you really had to isolate.
0: Yes, exactly. So I went from having family and friends who were in every day as part of my recovery, helping me, bringing meals, coming to socialize, visiting, to absolute lockdown at the recommendation of my medical team. Um, And it happened in February. So just as we were starting to beginning to see in the media what was actually happening, like in Wuhan, for example, they were like, it's coming. You need to be isolated as much as you can. And so I was terrified and alone starting pretty much in February.
3: Right. And so some people are going to take what you just said and kind of apply it to the next thing that we're going to talk about. Uh, And we'll have to explore that a little bit together. Uh, But what you did start to experience was activity around your dwelling place that you weren't causing and there was nobody else there to do stuff. So so, and mention what some of that activity uh, included.
0: Sure. So it started with lights going on and off. So there was one particular room where a light was on every time I walked in. And I would go, gosh, these medications I'm on for my heart failure must be really making me crazy because I don't remember turning this light on. So I was always walking into this room and turning off the light and walking in and turning off the light and walking in and turning off the light. Um, And so one day I turned it off and I said very firmly, now don't turn it on again out loud. And then I turned and walked out of the room. Um, And the next time I came back to the room, uh, the next time the overhead light, which I never turn on, was on. So it felt very cheeky, like, well, you said we couldn't turn on that lamp, so we've just turned on this other light. Um, It's either cheeky
3: (laughs) or a very very literal-minded ghost. Uh. Sure,
0: yeah, exactly. So that was the first thing. And then several days after that, I started hearing a man and a woman having conversations. Um, I couldn't make out what they were saying, um, but I would be standing in my kitchen and I would hear people talking as if they were in another room in my house. I would go to that room. There's nobody there. I would look in the hallway of my building. There's nobody there. I would go to the windows. There's nobody outside. Um, I don't hear a lot of ambient noise and neighbor noise in my house. And so it was very strange. Um, And I heard them several times. Um, Never could make out what they were saying. Sounded pleasant. The woman often laughed. Um, But yeah, I started hearing these voices. Um, And then maybe the scariest ish thing that happened was um, I started kind of trying to channel my anxiety into making masks for all of my family and friends. Um, And so I had sort of this sewing station set up uh, in the same room where the lights were going on and off, where I would um, sort of have this assembly line of masks. And when I got to my last mask in my assembly line where I had sort of two pieces of cotton, I ironed them and I turned around to my sewing machine to you know, adjust my needle, turn back within 20 seconds to grab the, the cotton to make this mask. And it was gone, mm. just gone. And I thought, well, that's funny. So I'm looking up, you know, around the table, around the ironing board. I'm looking at myself, going through my pockets, opening drawers, going to the other room to the garbage can, looking in the recycling, like taking my house apart, going, where are these two pieces of fabric? They were gone and they never came back. Um, yeah. So that was kind of scary.
3: <laughs> so I, I uh, know, I know from our research that you have a cat. And cats, Kat, so cats, they don't watch the X Files. They don't have any reason to to believe one, one thing or another. How's your cat handling all this?
0: She's definitely, I, I catch her often looking in directions um, and like very clearly looking at something. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what she's looking at. Um, so, for example, just last week, there was one night where we were lying in bed in the main bedroom of the house and she, sort of alerted like someone was in the house and was staring again across the hall at the other room where all the activity has been very clearly like there's somebody there and shortly thereafter we started hearing lots of knocks and suds on the walls uh which again just really felt like someone very clearly expressing their presence but she had noticed it first because she had alerted and sort of got up and was like what's going on
3: so, um, I want to come back to that in just a second, but prior to all of this, prior to the pericarditis, myocarditis, uh-huh. and then the COVID lockdown, who uh-huh. were you prior to that? If somebody said, you know uh what 12 months ago oh well danielle's got a ghost in her house right now would people go well there goes danielle again or they would they go are you kidding she's like the last person i would expect that from or somewhere on that spectrum yeah
0: i would say probably they would they would say "Uh uh-huh that sounds right um not, not not because uh I, I was, you know, a, a huge believer in ghosts, but I am an artist um, outside of my career as a lawyer. I do a lot of acting and singing, writing, dancing. Um, they know that I have been raised with spiritual beliefs. And so it, it wouldn't have been outside the realm of possibility for this kind of thing to happen, I guess. Um, so there there was a certain amount of... Um, eye rolling, I guess, from from certain people. But I was actually surprised at the number of people who took what I was saying at absolute face value and were like, yeah, wow, that definitely sounds like you got something in your house. I was surprised, I guess, if we take my friends and family as sort of like a mini poll, how many people fell on the side of, yeah, that probably happened.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that I I described this in the promo to the show, I find if you're at a dinner party and after the first bottle of wine, people start just talking about this thing in a whole different way. People who wouldn't be comfortable talking about ghosts. They loosen up a little bit and suddenly, you know, they're telling you stories of experiences that they had. And I really do feel as though a lot of people just sort of aren't out, so to speak. I think that's
0: right. I think that's right. And I was surprised at some of the private messages because I was posting things on my Instagram account about what was happening. Um, and I had one person reach out to me who I'd never, would never have guessed that this was in their realm of experience. And that person said, actually, I'm an empath and an intuitive, and I actually can feel that there are spirits in your house. And, um, they're just popping in to say hi. Like, they're not always there. They're not attached to your house. They're just there to sort of let you know that they're around. Um, not a person that I would ever expected to talk about ghosts with, let alone have a conversation about how they're an empath and an intuitive. So I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people who are like in the ghost closet.
3: Right. And, and so, um, one thing about this, I mean, I think most people think ghosts and then they think woman, a living alone. Oh, there's the cat. The cat's talking. Sorry. The, the, <laughs> the cat wants to answer the question that was asked uh, about it. Uh, She's just a diva. So, so a lot of people sort of say, well, you know, a person, a woman living alone and she's had some health issues and now we get the COVID and she's isolated. This is going to be a really scary thing if, in fact, lights are going on and off and there's voices coming from nowhere. But you basically have experienced this, as I understand it, as more of a source of comfort than a source of terror.
0: I totally have. I totally have. I call them the neighbors. Um, and so when they show up, I sort of say, well, the neighbors are back. Um, and it really did feel like it came at a time when I felt very alone and really convinced that I was going to die of COVID, that I had gone through this whole condition, you know, heart condition and heart failure and had survived only to now get COVID. And I felt very, yeah, I was terrified um, and didn't know what that meant. And it felt like this really obvious sign of like, there is somebody watching out for you you are not alone and also like this isn't the end so don't sweat it too much um and so it was a comfort for me um and there's only been one time where it was scary where the knocking was really loud and very like insistent where I slept with the lights on Mm -hmm. but for the most time I'm just sort of very intrigued when it happens um and hoping to catch it either on camera or record it somehow because it's really an interesting phenomenon to witness
3: Well, our next guest, uh, Elizabeth Saint can definitely help you uh, with the technology part of that. But, um, you know, before you go, uh, you know, you you now have appeared in and therefore have read and are aware of uh, at least one article about this being kind of a a phenomenon during the lockdown that, you know, that the reports are going up. People who ordinarily wouldn't be talking about this or thinking uh, about this are saying, yeah, actually, there's somebody else in in our apartment, too. And what do you what do you make of all that?
0: I think a couple of things. I think if you want to take the view that ghosts are real and are an actual 100% phenomenon, you could look at it as we have spirit ancestors in the spirit world who know that this is a really difficult time for humanity and they're coming to to provide some of some comfort and some solace. Um, If you take the sort of skeptical view that these are hallucinations or sort of manifestations of energy that you cause yourself, well again, people are in need of comfort. Um, and if they can create these situations that allow them to feel less alone, I think that's okay. Um, or maybe it's just that we're all at home now and life is a lot quieter. And so we're able to hear and see these things more, like we're more open to it because life has slowed down so much. Um, I think for me, it's kind of a combo of all three.
3: All right. Uh, I think that's a good combo and Danielle, you've been a great guest and thanks for sharing something as personal as this with us. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to somebody who could probably tell Danielle what to set up if she wants to document this a little bit more or see if she can record it. Or That's not the only thing our next guest is an expert in, but it's there all right. Yeah. So we're talking about ghosts today. I should say there is a segment of the public radio audience that gets really upset about anything that seems even remotely woo-woo. So much so that producer Josh Nalea and I did an entire show on uh, woo-woo, the notion of woo-woo. But I also, as I said at the beginning, I feel like ghosts anyway are kind of a different category. They really uh, aren't. uh, uh, They're just so pervasive, the belief in ghosts, the perception of ghosts is so pervasive. And of course, for those of us who are, who are Irish, we're headed towards the time when the veil is thin, as we like to say. Uh, so even more so right, uh, right about now. So our next guest is Elizabeth Saint, uh, electrical engineer, paranormal researcher, president of the streaming platform Vitaspace. She was a paranormal researcher on Discovery's uh, Ghost of Shepherdstown. One thing I've sort of realized getting ready for the show is if you're a certain kind of person, you already know who Elizabeth Saint is because She's uh, kind of a, a celebrity if you watch things like param- Paranormal Lockdown or Ghosts uh, of Shepherdstown. So it's exciting to have her on here, uh, Elizabeth Saint. Welcome to our conversation.
4: Thank you so much for having me. So you know,
3: I think in people's stereotypes, there's sort of people who are electrical engineers and have a high background in in technology uh, and work for the Department of Defense and then there's sort of people who believe in the paranormal and that there's not too much crossover uh, in the two Venn diagram circles, but you appear to be that little crescent of crossover. Can you talk a little bit about this? It's hard even to describe who you are because your biography really does draw from both wells.
4: No, absolutely, you're you're 100% correct. I think I've only met maybe one other electrical engineer In the past like 10 years that's also into the paranormal so it's a very very small crowd party of two but (laughs) but yeah i i yeah my background's in electrical engineering i had experiences with the paranormal ever since i was a child and i know your previous guest mentioned it but i was kind of in the ghost closet for a long time (laughs) and it actually wasn't until that i moved down to the dc area for a job with the dod that I really felt compelled to kind of validate these experiences I've had my entire life. So that was back in about 2012, and I had moved into an apartment at the time. and the activity and things I was experiencing there was just so much that I, I had to I actually went online and I started googling like, you know, paranormal groups in the area. And I didn't realize that there were so many paranormal investigation teams because it wasn't something that I had, you know, thought to look up before. And I found this one group called Maryland Paranormal Research. And I, I started actually investigating with them on the weekends or when they would have residential cases, you know, similar cases to like your prior guests where suddenly they're starting to have experiences. They want an explanation as to why that's happening to them. And it was probably the best thing I could have done for my myself just from a mental place because I am so logical, but yet I was having these very sensitive experiences in my life and there was just no validation to them. So
3: one of the things that you're kind of associated with are so-called ghostly gadgets. And and I want to make sure that I understand this, too, because when I hear ghostly gadgets, the first thing I think is the PKE meter that Harold Ramis is holding up as he walks around uh, in Ghostbusters. But it seems like some of what you do with technology is find logical down-to-earth explanations for things that might appear paranormal at first blush.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I... I started actually, after the first season of Ghosts of Shepherdstown. one of my fellow co-hosts, Nick Groff, was starting a show called Paranormal Lockdown, and he said to me, you know, he's like, you know, you're an engineer, why don't you create me some devices for the show? And I was so ecstatic, because I, I felt like for the first time in my life, I was about to merge two passions of mine, you know, the paranormal and engineering, they don't quite go together, but... I was definitely up for the challenge so i i started creating these devices for paranormal lockdown and uh more exclusively during season three and season four of the show and all of my devices kind of come from a place of my own personal experiences actually i really wanted to humanize the devices i made i wanted to validate experiences people would have so if there was some sort of change in the space, I wanted to not only, like you said, provide a logical explanation as to why the atmosphere may be changing, but also validate it in a way that's believable. So, you know, a lot of the gear that people use out on the market, I don't think that they could really tell you what it does or what it's necessarily picking up on. They just, you know, if, if a light's flashing at them, it's, it's a ghost. And I worry about that perspective because if we ever going to be taken seriously in the paranormal community, you know, there has to be something that is more scientific based that backs up our experiences.
3: Maybe you could walk our listeners through an example of something like this, something maybe from paranormal lockdown. I know you've got a cracked mirror story. I don't know if you want to use that one or, or another one to kind of illustrate oh, what yeah. it, you know, what it is you do or or how something like that plays out.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of times I would I would build things prior to their investigation if they knew, you know, certain things that they wanted to pick up on. But there were also instances where I would build gear on the fly if they had just had something happen. So for instance, they were interviewing a woman one time and out of nowhere in the in the room behind them, they were outside, but in the front room there was a a loud crash and they they ran inside and a mirror actually had fallen to the floor. And when you looked at the wall, the the nail that the wire was hanging on that was holding the mirror was actually angled upward. Mm -hmm. So in order for that mirror to even fall off, it would have had to have been lifted over that nail because it was still in its place. So I I told them, give me one hour. (laughs) And I went to the RV and I whipped together uh, a device that I could put up on the mirror. There were still pieces of it left that they could hang back up. So I I put together a small device that kind of detected whether or not something touched the mirror or if, if it was ever slightly moved in the XYZ direction. I used something called an accelerometer. And so... If it were touched or moved in the slightest at any point in the investigation, it would actually sound an alarm. And it was really neat because during their investigation that night, it actually went off and provided kind of validation for the experience that they had had prior. So
3: so what do you do with that then?
4: What do you mean? Just well, and, and,
3: and so, in other words, uh, you whip up this device, you, 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 yeah. can, you, you use it. I mean, what I guess I'm saying mentally, how do you process something like that when it's all over? I,
4: I think it's, I think it's, you know, a lot of things that people experience with the paranormal, they don't really have any validation for it. And the biggest thing is like, can you recreate an experience that just happened? A lot of times you can't. Hmm. So, in an instance like that, it was really cool because, uh, you know, the fact that it happened the second time. Yes. Was a phenomenon in itself, but then the fact that it could be validated with a piece of equipment and it wasn't something uh, there was nobody in the room, you know, a camera was on it. There was no other explanation as to why that it happened.
3: What you know? You listen to the conversation with Danielle. What would you say to Danielle if she, if just based on? I mean, uh, first of all, I just want to say I've already decided that you, you are the MacGyver of ghosts. Uh, this idea that she can just sort of run into the RV and come up with something. But but you know, I, I said to Danielle, well, you know, Elizabeth could probably tell you whether you know whether there's something you could set up to try to document this or you know, some way to try to understand it. Or maybe you would even advise her not to try to do any of that. But but if you were talking to her. What would you say?
4: Oh, that's a good that's a good question. I, you know, she said some really interesting things at the end. I, I definitely believe, you know, if you believe something enough, you can kind of create your own ghosts in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, everyone staying indoors indoors these days, I definitely believe heightens their experiences into why these are happening. And uh, I think it's funny. What, what did she call them? The neighbors.
3: The neighbors. Yeah.
4: She she named them the neighbors. I don't know if that's the best thing. I I imagine because of that she'll start having even more experiences. I, I personally don't. I, I personally don't do any kind of investigation in my own home just because mm. I like to keep it, you know, kind of my own little safe haven. Yeah. And I I think at the same time, you know, if if she was truly curious just something as simple as a digital recorder will give you really fantastic results, especially if you ask a question and get an intelligent response back. But then, you know, I think the question is and remains, you know, what are you really communicating with? Because people think ghosts, you know, maybe their past loved ones, maybe it's someone that's died, but I think it can be all sorts of things. It could be an impression on the space. It could be yourself. I even said, you know, I mean, could be some sort of interdimensional thing or we're talking to a version of ourselves on a strange time loop. I don't know. I think we we don't know enough yet to know exactly what it is that's happening. I think all of us can just agree that the world is strange.
3: So um, in in all the stuff that you've been doing uh, and working on these shows and therefore going to these places, first of all, are, are you ever frightened by what's going on? Do you Have you encountered uh, situations that were so eerie or uncanny that you yourself became nervous?
4: You know, there's actually this one location and it's over in the UK. We had to go to it during uh, filming Paranormal Lockdown. It's called Shepton Mallet Prison. And out of all the places that I've been to in the world so far, that was the one place that man, I it just had an energy all on its own and and people that normally have never had any kind of experience in their life were seeing things there, you know, at dusk and these shadow figures moving around. But there was this one particular area, you know, sometimes I'd have to go back and forth and help set up gear and stuff. There was one particular area where at the time they had just started excavating these 1,600-year-old jail cells. And there was an area at Shepton Mallet where the executions had occurred. And when you pass that space, it was the most god-awful feeling that you would get. And I tell people, you know, I definitely wouldn't walk by that space. Some, sometimes I would, I would run because the, the feeling I get, I just feel like there was some, somebody on me almost, and ah, I didn't like it. So if, if there was any one place, it's definitely that place for me.
3: So you you went into this whole life with, as you say, some pretty early experiences as a sensitive. But in the work that you do, no doubt you are in situations sometimes where people are maybe prematurely prepared to believe that that something's a ghost i mean you you may have experiences like the one you just described i'm sure you're also having experiences where you think oh no that's that's not what this is there's a much more humdrum explanation for for what's going on so i don't know at the end of all, all the last i don't know seven years or so has the bead on your abacus moved in any particular direction are do you are you more likely to believe in paranormal things less likely or just have your metrics for deciding or thinking one way or the other just changed as a result of all this stuff
4: it's a fantastic question because i i think about it often i i think you know the saying holds true with me where the more I know, the the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything at all, mm-hmm. and I think it's because I've been exposed to so many different personalities, so many different perspectives, uh, religions, beliefs, and you can kind of empathize with all the different viewpoints. And I think, like I said before, it just brings me back to, you know, a space where. I, I actually don't even know if I lean anymore in one particular direction as to what I believe is actually happening I just I, the yeah. only thing I do know is that you know something is happening
3: I so get that i you know I used to be a religion writer and when you're a religion journalist you know you meet People who have pretty extreme beliefs every day and they're always different too. You know, you meet a a Mormon elder one day and the next day it's a member of the Hare Krishna movement and the day after that it's a Pentecostal preacher. Mm -hmm. After a while you think, well, this, it can't all be true, but, but it's really making my head swim how many things could conceivably be true and that people passionately believe are true. And, and what you say makes me think of William James. Uh, who was, in addition to being you know, a really eminent American philosopher, somebody very interested in parapsychology and parapsychological research. Mm-hmm. But in, in the course of writing about philosophy, he said, uh, we may be in the libraries of the universe like dogs and cats in a, in a library, hearing the, s- the sounds and seeing the sights and not understanding any of it. Um, so, oh, I love that. Yeah, there you go. I think I misquoted it, but it's close enough. You can look it up. So, Elizabeth St. So great to talk to you. You're a wonderful guest. And I, I now that now I'm going to become a fan, too. Uh, so I look forward to your future work.
4: Thank you so much.
3: All right. So we're going to take a little break here. I promised you skeptics. You're going to get skeptics. But nice skeptics. Not the sneery, poopy kind of skeptics.
4: I'm just an average man an average life I work from nine to five hell I pay the price all I want is to be left
3: alone All right. So uh, time to thank uh, certain people, starting with Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio firing off clips and music and making the whole thing work and getting the guests on the air. And also was the person who led us to Elizabeth Sane. Uh, and Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this particular episode on Ghosts. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to do The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. Uh, We have a a guy, a young guy who I think may make it in radio as one of our panelists, uh, a young fellow named Mike Pesca. Uh, no, actually, Mike Presker is like legendary, uh, NPR reporter turned host of the amazing, uh, podcast, The Gist. Uh, and he is going to make, uh, an appearance on The Nose tomorrow, along with Lucy Gelman. Uh, we are watching the James Comey series or the two part series, uh, on Showtime. Uh, and we will be talking about that. So, um, so yeah, I think that's everything that I had to say. Uh, and, uh, we'll get right back to things. So I promised you skeptics. And I, I promised you nice skeptics. And since I kept saying that, now they have no choice but to be nice. Uh, Chris French uh, is a professor of psychology and head uh, of the Anomalistic Psychology Research unit, unit, Department of Psychology at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He's the former editor of The Skeptic Magazine. Deborah Hyde is a cultural anthropologist and a fellow of the Committee of Skeptical Inquiry. Uh, she recently retired as editor of The Skeptic Magazine. So first of all, welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Um, You know, actually, I have to ask, uh, Chris, uh, about this department, the Anomalistic (laughs) Psychology Research Unit of the Department of Psychology. Is anomalistic, uh, does it it speak to the kind of conversation we're about to have? Is that what anomalistic means in that context?
2: I think think it very much does. I mean, it's basically obviously based on the word anomaly, so Mm -hmm. something that's unusual, something that uh, we think needs some kind of explanation. Uh, I mean, the reason that I ended up going for that phrase was that people used to ask me, you know, what's your area of research? And I came out with quite a mouthful, which was it's the psychology of ostensibly paranormal experiences and related beliefs. And I thought, no, 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 I need something more concise. And I didn't invent the phrase, the term anomalistic psychology. It was already there. But now, whenever people ask me, I can just say, oh, it's anomalistic psychology. And they say, what the hell is that? And then I have to say, well, it's the psychology of ostensibly paranormal experiences and (laughs) related beliefs. So it didn't quite work. But, you know, uh, that is essentially what it is. It's the psychology of weird stuff.
3: You know, uh, there's, uh, here in, in where I'm in, in Connecticut, there's this beautiful, beautiful old architecturally marvelous house sitting on some very gorgeous property. And the person who created it was a young, uh, architect named Theodate Pope Riddle who was from a very wealthy family. And she was very interested in, in paranormal stuff and, uh, parapsychology. Actually got on the Lusitania to go to a conference in London. And it was the voyage of the Lusitania that sank, although she was one of the survivors. But, uh, she, she actually tried to endow a chair at Harvard for William James in parapsychology. And Harvard said, we'll take the money. We'll we'll take William James. You got to call it something else. We just we can't have that. We can't have a parapsychology chair. So, well, I, yeah, yeah
2: no, I, I completely appreciate w- what you're saying there, because parapsychology is generally within the kind of scientific community kind of, you know, seen as being, whoa, that's not really that's, that's woo, to use yeah. your term earlier, you know. Uh, and, I, and I disagree, even though I am a sceptic. I think parapsychology is a legitimate subject. People, There's no doubt at all that people have these weird experiences. And there's no doubt at all that many, many, many people believe in the paranormal. So there's something there that needs to be explained. Whether ultimately the explanation is in paranormal terms or in psychological terms remains to be seen. But, uh, you know, we had a similar experience over here with a, you know, a very famous guy called Arthur Kursler, who left uh, an endowment um, for, for, to, to set up a chair in parapsychology. And this was quite a while back now, but lots of universities wouldn't even touch that money. I think maybe now that things are a little bit tighter, they would have done. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there is a Kersler chair in parapsychology at Edinburgh and, uh, and they've done great work.
3: All right. So, um, I'm going to follow up on that in just a second. I just want to say to Deborah Hyde, if you're listening right now, I'm going to send you a psychic message. You need to unmute your zoom or we won't be able to hear you. So, uh, hopefully she's getting that message. So, uh, Let's talk a little bit about ghosts. As I've been sort of saying, they are to me, they're sort of the most lunch pale part of, of parapsychology or paranormal activity, just in the sense that, you know, they just seem it, it seems like a pretty pervasive belief. And I guess that wouldn't be a surprise. Right. I mean, at minimum, it's tied to the basic truth about ourselves and our existence, which is that at least to the naked eye, it's all finite. Uh, You know, when when our loved ones die, they're gone forever. When we die, we're gone forever. I mean, some of believing in ghosts, I assume, is just pushing back against that idea.
2: I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, none of us, believers or skeptics, really like the idea that when we die, that's it. And maybe even more so, we don't like the idea that when our loved ones die, That's it. We'll never see them again. We'll never have any contact. So we want to believe in life after death. And although, obviously, in terms of a lot of religious beliefs, life after death is kind of is a positive thing. There is also inevitably a kind of flip side to that. That if, if we believe in life after death, we believe that something, some essence of ourselves, survives bodily death, and that raises the possibility that maybe whatever that is, the soul, whatever you want to call it can hang around on the earthly plane and still interact with the living and so you know i think that's where a lot of the kind of motivational emotional side comes from and then again because of the ways that our brains are wired we've got various kind of cognitive biases it's almost as if we've got our brains pre-wired by evolution to believe in this stuff even if the evidence maybe isn't all that strong
3: so, yeah, I think we do have Deborah Hyde now. Um, and, and, hi. hi. So this takes the form of movements. I mean, here in New England, uh, certainly in the, uh, particularly in the late 19th century, maybe a little bit earlier 20th century, there was a tremendous interest, uh, in spiritualism. And it was, mm. if anything, uh, Deborah kind of almost fashionable to, uh, to believe in at least something like a ghost, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. It started really in the early 19th century. And its I always find it very interesting that these beliefs aren't just based on um, verifiable reality. They really are connected so closely to the way people are behaving day to day. The, one of the things that really kick-started spiritualism was that people had a lot of... Um, kind of freelance religiosity, if you like. Uh, The Erie Canal opened up all of the land beyond the Appalachians. So you had huge economies, cities, settlements starting, uh, but no institutional religion. And it meant that people who fancied their who wanted to chance their arms, starting off a new religious movement, had a great time and place to do it. Some of those movements survived, like Mormonism, um, but some of them were just people shouting in, in show tents, and spiritualism absolutely thrived during this time. And of course, people were, were suffering very badly. They, there was no social security. They were out on a on what was a frontier, so they needed a very intense kind of religiosity to compensate for the day-to-day difficulties they were having. Spiritualism really did speak to that. Um, it was associated... It was also became a very middle-class kind of a religion. It was associated with very progressive social movements like uh, uh, like emancipation um, from slavery uh, and uh, votes for women. So it was you know, it was a big social movement.
3: Right, but I think your point is a, an interesting one, which is... In the absence of orthodoxy, I mean, orthodoxy will tell us one way or another, if we're living within some kind of movement, uh, yeah. what to think about something like ghosts. So if we're living in Papua New Guinea at a certain time, we, we may be told, yes, absolutely, the ghost of our ancestors, and you can, you have to eat this brain brain, yeah. or whatever it is you're going to do. Uh, or, you know, with if we're practitioners, practitioners of Shintoism, or in other words, if, if we're in an orthodox movement that has some kind a recognizable doctrine or dogma, we'll know what we're supposed to think about ghosts, uh, positive yeah, or negative. Yeah, and,
1: and it would also be enforced from the top downwards. I mean, there would be uh, penalties in, um, you know, a 14th century village, or actually more specifically a town where you, you had a church and perhaps an archbishop. There would be real penalties for deciding that you knew about the supernatural world in a better way than the local priest did. So um, the opportunities to come up with funky ideas of your own and to try and get a bit of momentum behind that only occurs at certain times and places in history.
3: Right. So, Chris, you know, then one of the things that happens is and there's this landmark book written uh, uh, in the early post-World War II era by Philip Reeve called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, in which Reeve argued that, you know, that really the life was being leached out of religious orthodoxy and religious belief in general and replaced with a much more therapeutic, scientific, social science uh, model. And so in that environment, it's kind of different, uh, Chris, I think, than what Deborah describing. I mean, you really, you know, maybe you are on your own uh, if you are trying to make sense of feelings you have, sensations you have, a presence that might seem to be in your house, a drawer that's opening and closing. You, you kind of have to decide a little bit more on your own, I think.
2: Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, th- I, th- I think the thing is that, you know, the, the there have been many attempts, you know, historically and, and geographically to try to kind of suppress religion and religious beliefs and all those kind of takes on things in different countries. And they're generally unsuccessful, and I think that that speaks to this point I was making earlier that uh in in many ways, evolution has shaped our brains in such a way that we are predisposed to to believe in ghosts and spirits and gods and and we find those kind of ideas very easy to latch onto um i mean just so to give you just a couple of you know examples of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of evidence from psychology that we have a bias towards believing whenever something happens around us, someone or something made it happen. Now, you, you see this kind of very clearly in children, a lot of developmental psychology studies will show this, but even in adults, it's as so that kicks in and then we suppress it because you know we've, we've learned that sometimes things just happen by accident. But that basic kind of idea is there and in evolutionary terms it makes sense of course because it you know what evolution is all about is keeping you alive long enough to pass on your genes to the next generation it's not about producing a brain that is good at apprehending the truth with a capital t about the universe and so you know it, everybody always gives the same example of you know if there's if there's, the stone age man there and there's something rustling in the bushes. Is it, is it a threat? Is it a predator? Or is it just the wind? Um, It's best to assume it's a threat because if you're wrong, it doesn't cost you very much, but you stay alive. If you take too long to make your decision, you're dead. You're lunge. It's, so, it's the
3: earliest uh, so, version of so, Pascal's wager, is basically yeah, what essentially you're yeah.
2: So you know, so it just it just makes sense for us to kind of be, be drawn to those kind of beliefs. And there are other kind of psychological biases as well that tend to push us in that direction. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not about trying to kind of convince people that that God doesn't exist, that spirits don't exist, that ghosts don't exist. I happen to believe. Personally, that all those things are true. I may be wrong, but um, I'm interested in: well, you know, okay, can we actually try and get some evidence one way or the other to support these beliefs?
3: Right. And so, you know, uh, Deborah. I don't know if you heard Danielle, our first guest, talking. Yes. But so I, I, she seems like a really nice person, and I certainly had no interest in invalidating her experiences. But I, I suppose that if one wanted to call them into questions, question, you could take everything that Chris just said and say, layered on top of this is a whole bunch of very legitimate sources uh, of, yeah. of medical fear, biological fear, piled on top of social isolation, uh, whatever. Whatever engine it is that that might manufacture uh, something that isn't really there is probably in overdrive in a situation like that.
1: Yeah, I think one of the problems with ghost experiences or with the ghost theory is that it's, it's kind of disprovable. It's hard to set up repli- repeatable experiments because it's based so much on people's anecdotal experience, truly heartfelt anecdotal experience as well. And also something I would say to everybody who's ever experienced a ghost is that if you're feeling strange about this, don't, because I think it's a totally, totally human thing to go through. Um, you know... Uh, the thing with Danielle's experiences uh, that struck me is that, that she was isolated and her sleep patterns had changed. Um, I think uh, I've heard that uh, people are undergoing more extreme, more lucid um, kinds of dreams during the lockdown experience. So it would be interesting to see what had happened there. It'd be interesting to see if she was on new medication because of her um, illness. So... If we were to do an investigation, I'd, I'd just be interested in those kinds of things. It might not be the total solution, but they'd be the first questions to ask.
3: Right. So, can Chris, I, can I just come you, in yeah, you go ahead. Well? Sure, yeah.
1: Just, yeah, sure. I mean,
2: because again, I mean, I've, been, I've been thinking about this, uh, knowing I was going to be doing this interview. And you know, is is there is there really a kind of an increase in reports of people having ghostly experiences during the lockdown? Well, to be honest, I don't know is the short answer, but it would not surprise me at all I mean, one of the points so I think was made earlier by, by one of your previous guests, I mean, people, people are at home a lot more now. And also to follow up on, on the point Deborah made there, if sleep patterns are disrupted, I mean, I know my sleep pattern has been really weird during the lockdown. You know, I'm waking up early in the morning and not being able to get back to, back to sleep. So you're hearing sounds in your house that were probably there every night. But you didn't notice them before because you slept through them. Um, all those kind of things, and, and and again, one of my kind of you know passions, one of my major research interests is a phenomenon called sleep paralysis. And sleep paralysis is, again, I'll give you the kind of twelve-word version because I know we don't have much time left. It's a very common experience. About one in twelve people in the general population experience it at least once in their lives. Um, And it's when you're half awake and half asleep and you realise you can't move. But very often it's also associated with associated symptoms that include things like a very strong sense of presence. You also might actually hallucinate. You have difficulty breathing. You have intense fear. Uh, Now, obviously, if someone has that experience and they don't know that there is actually a scientific and medical literature about this phenomenon, it wouldn't be too illogical for them to think, I've got a ghost in my house, you know, and so we're not, denying and, and also,
1: I mean, Chris, I'm, I'm sure would, would, um, would second this, is that actually hallucinations, especially auditory hallucinations in the non-psychiatric population are actually, are actually, you know, the incidence is actually quite high, it's quite common. It's
2: much, much, much more common than people generally realise, and again, this is an issue that if, if you were to say to someone, well, maybe, maybe you were just hearing things or seeing things, they, they take that as a kind of you're saying I'm crazy, but that's not the case because we can all hallucinate under appropriate conditions and and particularly conditions of increased stress, a social isolation. I mean, again, there's a huge literature on the fact that, uh, you know, often kind of mountaineers who kind of get lost and so on, they, they, they think they've got an imaginary companion who's guiding them to, to safety and so on. So these, these things are well documented. Um and again we're not you know it's it's not the case that anybody who has these beliefs is is crazy not at all they can they can happen to anybody right. whether well, but- or not
3: as, we're, as, as we come towards an end, we're almost out of time here. But, but Deborah, you know, first of all, I love the way that both of you are talking about this. But you're also threading kind of a needle, right? So, if you have somebody who's had some kind of very recognizably standard sleep paralysis experience onto which they have layered some kind of paranormal experience, you, on the one hand, don't want to uh, disgrace them or in in any way make them feel invalidated. And on the other hand, you you want to give them a clinical perspective. Uh, on this as well. And so in our final 60 seconds, I don't know, tell us how you know, how how do you thread that needle?
1: I think the clinical perspective is maintaining their dignity. To give an example with sleep paralysis you can have some pretty unpleasant experiences with sleep paralysis chances are if you know what it is they'll never happen again so it gives people power for them to have the rational explanation and there are some um evangelical churches that will tell you that you are being attacked by demons now if you had an experience would you rather have a scientist tell you about the very common very harmless phenomenon of sleep paralysis, would you rather be told by your pastor that you're being attacked by demons?
3: Oh yeah, I I love that answer. All right, we have to stop there. (laughs) Deborah Hyde and Chris French, Uh, we are out of time. Uh, Yeah, I'm gonna pick the scientific answer. Although I'm a little scared right now. I don't know if you guys heard that noise. I don't have a dog. There's just a lot of barking in this house. There was a dog who lived here uh, 50 years ago, uh, long before I moved here. So I'm very concerned. Uh, But thanks very much uh, to Chris French and to Deborah Hyde uh, and to all of you who listen. Chris French, a professor of psychology at Goldsmiths College, University of London. Deborah Hyde, a cultural anthropologist. Thanks especially to Betsy Kaplan.